Hello, I'm Marie Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today's topic is cognitive empathy, what it is and why it's important for leadership. My guest is Dr. Etienne van der Walt, neurologist, CEO of Neurozone and keynote speaker from Cape Town. Welcome Etienne. Hello, Mariette, and um, hi, everybody. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you today, and it's such an important topic, you know, and so relevant uh, for where we are in the world today. Etienne, before we get to our topic, if a child asked you what you do for a living, how would you explain it to him or her? I would tell him that, that I watch rugby. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> on a serious note, uh, Right. So, so the work that I do, I would tell the child, is I um, I was trained in the world of neurology, which is all about the illnesses and the dysfunctions of the brain and the nervous system, which includes our muscles and everything that moves us um, and everything that the brain does for us. But what I do currently and have been doing for the last 10 years is I am a non-practicing neurologist and I'm actually working in a business called Neurozone, which I um, was privileged to co-found. Uh, and what we do at Neurozone is we really look at everything that you and I do, and we measure it and say, what is the most important thing that you can do now to remain or to become the best version of yourself? Um, and so, um, and of course, that speaks to resilience. But to tell a young child what resilience is takes a bit of extra time as well. Yes, I think we'll get to that. Etienne, can you tell us about the day you decided to become a neurologist? <laughs> I've got to think back a long way now. Um, so I think the, the important thing is that I was always fascinated by how the brain works, Mariette, and, and how it works for us to ensure that we uh, thrive in life, really. And um, I was fascinated by the, the concepts of intelligence um, and how I thought we got it so wrong by talking about IQ and and how we worked at our best and what what it is that that actually enables us to use skills or how we actually acquire knowledge and how we use that knowledge and skills uh, to solve problems and what that did for well-being and so on. Um, so what is interesting about neurology is that it really doesn't look at any of these things except that it it really looks at what goes wrong when this incredible brain-body system um, has got some kind of uh, dysfunction. But for me, uh, it was really important to understand how the brain works uh, as deep as I possibly could. And uh, as far as my interest went, especially also because I love working with people and helping people, for me, becoming a doctor was uh, a, a, a very simple decision um, at the end. Uh, and of course, neurology is the field that really studies the, the functions of the brain, the functions and structure of the brain, uh, the deepest that you can uh, study it in any field of medicine. Um, of course, that um, that is not the behavior of the brain, but how it actually structures, how it is structured and how it functions. And I was very, very interested in this understanding. Uh, and that led to one thing after the other. So um, for me, it was always about having a deeper understanding, but then utilizing this um, to its best ability. Somebody asked me, "Would you? Have, why didn't you just go and do psychology? Why didn't you go for uh, psychiatry? Um, and I would just say, well, you know, th those are all ways of getting to the same, I would think, um, end point, the end goal. 
but this just happened to be part of my fascination with how the brain-body system worked. Thank you. Now, you focus on enhancing human capacity, especially in the areas of leadership development, education, and early childhood development. Today, we're focusing on leadership development. And uh, it seems that the C factor is a buzzword in business and high performance. Can you tell us what the C factor stands for? Right, yes. To understand the C factor, uh, capital C, we have to understand the small caps G factor. And the G factor uh, is um, something which cognitive psychologists uh, talk about when they think about the general intelligence of an individual. Now, let's just for a moment unpack intelligence. Uh, many different ways of looking at intelligence, but but by and large, it refers to the capacity that you and I have to uh, solve problems and to um, ensure that we come up with the right uh, solutions that uh, has to be adaptive for the group, meaning that it promotes the group survival. It's always about the group in which we live and operate and so forth. Why do I say that? Because Otherwise, nobody is going to buy into what you say um, and utilize uh, the solutions that you that you provide. It's very, very closely related to what we call the neuroscientific definition of creativity and creativity, meaning it's a it's a problem solving kind of process. So this system, the ability to actually utilize all the bits and pieces of knowledge about the world and everything that we've learned and then to be able to piecemeal this all together uh, and to build what, what I would call a realistic scenario of the possible, to understand the process underneath how the system works, and then using that knowledge to come up with the right solution uh, speaks to intelligence. If somebody asks me what's the difference between intelligence and creative problem solving, I would say that the one is an imperative for the other, or at least enhances the other. Um, so intelligence, almost like a little two train trucks if you may, or train cars next to each other, the one adjacent to the other, intelligence precedes innovation or precedes creativity, but they use very much the same process. Remember that the brain is not actually uh, interested in the way that you and I break down things into concepts. The brain is a very holistic process. Um, so long story short, that kind of intelligence, there is a, also a place in the brain that actually follows an interesting pathway, the so-called super highways of the brain. It's also called, for those who are interested, the dorsolateral pathways. These are pathways that go right from the back of the brain to the front of the brain, to the prefrontal or the frontal cortex. And these are big pathways in which an intelligence process or a process of problem solving is driven. And uh, this has also been called something like the P-FIT by radiologists. Uh, for those who are interested, called the parietofrontal integration theory. Fit. This is not really important, but it's just interesting that it's a physical place in the brain. These are pathways. They actually light up and drive the process of intelligent understanding and intelligent processes for problem solving. Back to the G, because remember, this almost feels like a bit of an ad break. Now we have an <laughs> understanding of intelligence. Intelligence really is in one way measured by the so-called Spearman, uh, Spearman's G factor. S-P-E-A-R-M-A-N. So Spearman's G-factor talks about the intelligence capacity of an individual. So what is the C-factor? The C-factor is the collective intelligence factor of a group. And so uh, the studies that have been done, for example, at MIT, by the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence, um, now many years ago, actually, about a decade ago or more, was focused on studying what is the effect of 
specific components of the group. Uh, what are the characteristics of a group that will enhance the C factor? And they, of course, then came up with these uh, in- interesting factors that enhances the C factor above the highest G in the group. Because remember, it's quite important for us if we work in a group that we come up with something that's that gives us a better outcome than what the one person in that group who could do this best would have done on their own because that would have required way less energy, right? The other three could have gone and make coffee and enjoy uh, a bit of television or Netflix. Uh, but uh, this is the idea of the C factor. So when I listen to you, it strikes me that you say that we really need to function in a group for optimal performance. Could you just uh, say more about that? This is a fascinating thing. Um, and I think, we, you know, we are just, as humans, are just really touching the surface of this incredible concept, which really speaks to systems thinking um, and the way that a living system aggregates and operates. I think a few a few pointers around the group to be made. Um, and we can, we can actually approach this from a number of, of angles. So let me first take the first angle and say, we aggregate into groups naturally, which means that it's something that we don't actually devise or we don't come up with a plan as to how to structure ourselves into groups. Of course, we do that, but but it's because we naturally do that anyway. And so the idea of aggregating into smaller groups and larger groups is also quite profound. Um, the smaller group aggregation speaks to families in society. It speaks to teams in organizations and institutions. It speaks to a small group of people who get together, who aggregate naturally, and are driven and glued together through a social safety driver, if you may, called bonding. And bonding is driven by trust, by actually entrustment, if you want to use even a better word to understand what bonding is. Entrustment means I give everything I've got to you, and you give everything you've got to me. You entrust yourself to me, and I entrust myself to you. I entrust my most deepest secrets even to you, the deepest who I am. Now, this sounds very ideal, right? It sounds like an absolute ideal marriage, if you may. But this is the way that that, that we actually work. And the idea is that this is driven by the brain, and I can say a bit about that in a, in a moment, but I don't want to lose the trajectory or the, or the line of thought here. So the idea that we aggregate into small groups is very natural. And let's just for a moment repeat we, we aggregate into families in uh, life and into teams in the workplace or in the, our place of work and learning. Then, then we aggregate into larger groups or cohorts. And this is called society, uh, uh, not society, it's actually called tribes, if you may, or subcultures um, or small communities, if you may, in, in life. And in, and in organizations, it's the organization. So, so effectively, tribes are made up of families and organizations are made up of teams. Um, and then these two larger aggregates, they all now converge again into society. And society uh, is a term which, of course, is an all-encompassing term for everyone alive, if you may. Uh, the, the whole human race forms different societies uh, in different uh, geographical settings, but effectively there is also such a thing as society at large. So the idea that this all happens naturally is quite important. Uh, and 
understanding what the drivers are in the brain that drives this and makes this happen and why it happens is critical for leaders to understand. And it actually forms a very important underpinning theme if you want to unpack the idea of cognitive empathy, uh, to understand why we work together uh, as groups and, and how this is structured by the brain. So maybe if you want, I can now continue in this line and explain a few other angles around this, uh, Mariette. Yes, please do. Okay, excellent. Another angle that we need to just think about is is anthropological, if you may. Now, I, with all respect uh, to anthropologists, we all think that we know something about anthropology. Uh, but, of course, anthropologists cringe when they hear us talking about the term anthropology. So let me just respectfully say I'm going to put my, my dirty feet in the <laughs> clean sheets of anthropologists now. Um, and with please forgive me if you're an anthropologist out there. The idea that we aggregate into groups, one of the ways of thinking is, um, is that we, from ancient times, um, have been very, very vulnerable on our own. And as individuals, the Homo sapiens, if you may, or even before Homo sapiens uh, time, we were devoured, very easily devoured by predators on the plains of Africa and Europe and so on. And so we uh, ran away and we hid in caves or wherever we could eat. So caves were a very, very good place to actually hide out and actually protect yourself against uh, these predators, if you may. Uh, sticking together, of course, in caves led to uh, a lot of what we today see and call social safety. Uh, so the social system uh, was created in groups uh, and especially thrived uh, in the cave era in, in these caves. And uh, what uh, people did together then, our ancestors, is they learned to communicate, they learned language, they learned, they developed speech, they developed capacities for collecting um, what we had to eat and, and also developed capacity for making clothes, keeping us warm and so on. Uh, even developed the capacity over time then also to, to devise implements uh, which could make us safe, for example, spears and knives and whatever they were. So you can see that this was, was profound in terms of the way that we, our ancestors developed. And the capacities I'm actually talking about here in neurology and in cognitive neuroscience um, have got names. I mean, as you know, speech is speech, but there are different forms of speech that we now know is very much a, a, a major part of the brain is, is dedicated to speech. Uh, and that's usually on the left side of the brain. Uh, and the right side of the brain worked with, for example, the capacity of understanding the visual spatial components of the world, uh, three-dimensional system and understanding how to create products and build things that can de and devise things that can help us actually keep us safe within this uh, structure of the three-dimensional um, space that we live in. Even the, even the idea of actually using our, our hands to, to, to pick up berries and so forth and make clothes is, resides in, in the left side of the brain, and it's called praxis. So these are all things that really is well known today in the, in the world of cognitive neuroscience. And it all developed in, in our ancestors over time, but, but one of the major components was that we had to stick together. And so the idea that sticking together brought us here also, it needs to be uh, tug in the cheek, understand that those individuals who thought that they could actually just survive on their own on these planes became midday snacks for the predators and they never became ancestors. Um, and so we have got all these these capacities which um, have been given to us by our ancestors 
And so we naturally still do things with a very archaic brain that has been done for the survival of the group uh, in these caves. So one is we naturally aggregate into these groups, small groups. We huddle into groups that have trust, deep trust, look after each other very well and deeply. And then we combine into larger groups uh, and tribes, if you may, so that we can actually protect ourselves. And downstream, therefore, there's a stay alive and and survive built into it. And upstream, there is the capacity for creative problem solving that came through the collective collaboration of this group, these groups uh, together in these caves. I think this is so critical to understand that, that, that this idea of sticking together keeps us alive, enables us to survive, and enables us to thrive by solving our problems collectively. And it still happens today. There are contextual changes there's a rapid acceleration of technology today that it actually requires a, a different and a nuanced way of collaborating. But at the same time, the same principles apply uh, right from the ancient times. That's fascinating because I think especially in the West, we tend to see ourselves as individuals and we sometimes lose contact with the idea that we aggregate into groups, as you say. That is a fascinating um, idea that you that you that you mentioned there now. So, so Mariette, I think uh, a way to think about this, and of course, remember these are thoughts, um, um, and I, and I and I want to put it out there as such. One of the ways of looking at the at the individualism, if you may, um, that that came with uh, industrialization um, and even capitalism in the West. Uh, now I'm using very very broad and large terms, and once again at risk of being uh, wrong. Um, so let me just stick to a, a gun that I know how to shoot with. Let me talk about this idea that that individually we build very deep verticals, um, and so through the industrial industrial period, we as the humans humans in the West worked very hard at actually building deep vertical capacity, meaning that individuals had to build a deep capacity of knowledge and skill sets um, and understanding. And it, that in itself led to the um, what I would call the threat of the Western society to um, isolate themselves from each other and to not interconnect properly. Uh, it, it's not that it didn't happen. It still happened. You still had teams, but you had a very sort of, uh, if you may, a masculine kind of team uh, hierarchy, a managerial process as opposed to a leadership process, a process that actually looked after machines and made the machines work. And I think that also had an effect um, uh, backlash on uh, the way that we regarded leadership. And I think we confused leadership and, and management with each other. Managing systems is a lifeless process, which is critical uh, for efficiency. But leadership is a live process where people lead people, and that is a very live, as I said, um, entity. Uh, so I think all of these lines were a bit murky um, through, through the industrial process and times. And so people probably felt fairly threatened and dehumanized uh, in the West. And I'm just speaking to that, to that, to that Western kind of industrial culture. Um, let me say one more thing about this. If you had very deep verticals, it also brought a mindset of, of a fear for failure. Uh, which meant that you had to have deep vertical capacity in, in your individual capacity and you went for individual uh, awards uh, in life unconsciously. This was built into all the educational systems um, and still is uh, quite prevalent. And then um, uh, as part of this, the challenge that you eventually end up having a serious fear for failure because if I don't, if I don't get it right, I'm gone, I'm dead. And so the fear for failure in itself – 
um, wasn't actually the greatest um, facilitator of collaboration, especially in a world of technology today where we know we must fail fast and we must be able to actually collaborate together and fail fast so we can actually have fix up our, our mistakes very quickly. But the mistakes are not only welcome, they are actually, we need to be very aware that they happen um, and so on and so forth. So you can see that the fear for failure and the individual, individual mindset is in itself, uh, in my mind, an, an impediment to collective creativity. Uh, we'll get back to that in a second when we talk about cognitive empathy, but um, we are still, we're still laying the table. Uh, one more thing I just need to mention, which I think uh, listeners will find fascinating, is the idea that during this time of industrialization, the uh, U.S. government uh, commissioned um, an, a psychologist, a French psychologist by the name of Charles Benet, to come up with some kind of a measurement of people's capabilities always within the context of the industrial world um, as to how well they can function in an industrial Western world, if you may. And Charles Benet is the father, if you may, of, of IQ. So the idea of the intelligence quotient, um, the IQ, uh, is something which was very much de devised uh, in the industrial time in an individualistic kind of setting and as applications in that way. So uh, that also brings me back to Spearman G, you see. So we're going back to C and we're talking cognitive empathy again. You can see that intelligence or the IQ uh, system of measurement in itself is not wrong, but it is contextual. And if you think about the context with what we need today, IQ is unlikely to be comprehensive enough and to be adequate. So we look at other ways of looking at the capabilities of the team, the group, the people, and so forth. And IQ forms a less prominent part of uh, what we look at when we look at capacities today. It's a ranking system. Um, and we look at a way of actually finding ways of looking at how the group works um, in this uh, regard. Therefore, the C factor once again comes into play. Such an interesting way to just close that loop. Yes, thank you. Now, Etienne, in your extensive international experience as CEO of NeuroZone, how does group composition impact on performance? So, this is a very interesting um, – let me make a few um, broader statements around this, Mariette, and then I'm also going to acknowledge that there are a few things that we don't know yet, or at least we are – there's a lot of research required here. The first thing is that, that the group composition is a very natural process. Groups come together and, um, and form from the core, uh, inwards, core, outwards, in a very natural way. I think that's the first important principle to acknowledge. When people – so when – People start out life. They are uh, embedded, if you may, in small groups with the, their families where they need bonding that gives them social safety, that bonding and trust and so forth. And then as they move out into the world, they start to aggregate into groups where, they, where little kids start to play with their peers. Um, and they start to do that because there is more in life to be more resources to be allocated than what my mother and my father and my family gives me. And so the drive to start to form new bonds, bonds which are really driven by a sense of belonging, which is not the same as bonding, uh, is an interesting one that, that, sta that starts in very early childhood around the terrible twos, right? So when these kids now start to play with their peers and start to figure out how do I build skills that enable me to belong, um, and but also uh, bonding. It's a very natural process, but it goes from very close, close entrustment to belonging, and then 
of course, we look for the right uh, partnerships, if you may, even in the playground uh, through which we can actually achieve what we need to achieve as even as young children. And we continue to do that right through our lives uh, in the world of business, et cetera, et cetera. I'm saying this because I think there's something here that is important to acknowledge. We should not try to engineer things too much. But at the same time, uh, we know that many things have already been engineered that was actually very bad uh, as well uh, to the detriment of groups. If you think about human uh, injustice and human inequality and so forth. So having said all of these, there are a number of pointers that actually point to how groups are constructed today. But, but groups construct themselves, therefore, from the core the core actually share more commonalities. And as you start to add what I call new blood into the team or the group, you start to have to start to add diversity. Um, you need more. And, you know, we, we've been using these words long before science actually figured this out, right? They says, hey, we need some, we need new blood here or more different blood, that kind of terms, right? It actually speaks to the fact that we go from a core of, deep commonalities and entrustment to having more and more um, diversity added to a group until you have a mix that can adequately solve the problems as you go from core to the outer, you also start to solve more and more complex problems. And why am I saying this is because the most complex problems are solved by a diverse group and a group that always has a composition of safety. So safety is established by bonding and belonging. I'll say a few words about this in a second. Uh, and then, of course, you leverage the diversity to solve the problems, the most complex uh, problems. How do you get this right? Well, the first thing is to understand bonding and belonging. Let's just talk about bonding and belonging and unpack it. Bonding is entrustment. It is actually it's, it's driven by a, a hormone that is secreted in the brain or actually by the uh, so-called pituitary gland, which is under the command of a structure in the brain called the hypothalamus. These are just terms, right? But they are in the center of the brain, very small structures, and they are situated on top of the most basic part of the brain called the brain stem. So the brain stem is as thick as your thumb. It is the natural extension downwards of the spinal cord. So it extends right, uh, right to the lower back. Uh, and uh, upwards, it extends into the rest of the brain, into the limbic system, the emotional brain, and then the rest of the problem-solving brain right to your prefrontal cortex here in front, the frontal lobes. So the idea of the brain stem is, is uh, that it is basic, should not be misunderstood. The brain stem is a basic structure, but it is extremely complex. It actually looks after your most basic functions, and that's why we call it basic. The basic functions are the things that keep us alive. It is breathing. It is heart rate. It is nutrition. Uh, eat hunger cycles. It is sleep, sleep-wake cycles. Yes, we have to sleep to stay alive. Um, that's an important imperative. Um, and so the idea that this is all driven by rhythms and cycles, you see. So breathing is... Uh, and loop-doop, loop-doop goes the heart, which is a rhythm. Uh, and then you have the hunger-thirst cycles and the sleep-wake cycles. The brain drives and keeps us alive through rhythms and cycles. And uh, the hypothalamus is the newest part of the brainstem. It is situated on top of the brainstem, but also the oldest part of the limbic system, the emotional system. And it's in this hypothalamus where the whole process of bonding is regulated through, uh, I said the whole process, it's technically not correct. There's actually more than just oxytocin, which is the hormone that is secreted by the hypothalamus, but let me just leave that there for the purists, acknowledge that. But for 
the sake of this conversation, I think it's important to understand that the hypothalamus drives the secretion of oxytocin, commands the pituitary gland to secrete it uh, when some things happen. For example, physical touch between mother and child, uh, physical touch and intimacy between people who love each other in romantic relationships where entrustment needs to take place. Uh, even stroking your pets and pets stroking you and you know rubbing them against you, that's all oxytocin is uh, oxytocin secreted, which is critical for the entrustment and to look after each other uh, and to keep each other alive. This little thing, keeping you alive, this term, is critical to understand when you think entrustment. Men, for example, so a lot of these examples involve women, but men also, for example, stay alive in wars by fighting back to back, especially in the times before before we had guns and, sh- and, 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 and all kinds of things killing from far. You had a sword and you had to actually cover 180 degrees on, on your side and the fellow at, the back, at your back had to cover the other 180 and if that soldier died, you were dead. It simply means that we kept each other alive and entrusted ourselves to one another. So the idea of entrustment in small groups is critical. Families and teams need entrustment. Now, um, and so this is driven by bonding. Belonging is very different. Belonging is the next phase. It's the phase when we go from the inner circle to the outer circle or the, the circle of larger groups and aggregates. This is the peers that we start to collaborate with when we are kids around two to look for resources outside of what we have in our families. It's a process that requires the skill of collaborating and in through collaboration to have uh, a sense of reward which is driven by a neurotransmitter, which is secreted between brain cells, right, called dopamine. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is secreted by brain cells when they talk to each other through this electrical current. Just for those of you who don't know how this works, the brain consists of billions of brain cells, uh, around 86 to 100 billion electrically active brain cells, and many, 10 times more other cells that support them. But these electrically active brain cells form what we call circuits, neural circuits, and they're very much like an electrical current and an electrical board or wires that you put in your house. These wires are connected, and they secrete at the point of connection. They secrete these neurotransmitters in different neurotransmitters in different places. And when you actually when you drive processes of belonging that is good for us to have this belonging, I secrete dopamine in these pathways. And these pathways are very different from the bonding, you see. I actually want to make the statement, make it very clear that there's a distinct difference between bonding and belonging. And belonging is, it resides within larger groups, uh, as I said, in a more evolved part of the brain. And we need both to be a successful species. So both of these are important in teams, bonding and belonging. And this needs to be established very well for us to be able to leverage the diversity. Now, back to your question of how do you put this team together and how is a good team constituted? Um, it consists of different people, but also who have enough commonalities to have entrustment. But at the same time, then, as you have larger groups, uh, teams, you actually need a lot of the belonging. Uh, and then you huddle into smaller groups of entrustment. Uh, the entrustment group size is about five to eight people. Uh, and then if you have larger project teams and other teams, of course, we have to have huddles uh, for entrustment. And then the rest of the team requires belonging. And that commonality is now is essential so that we can leverage the diversity. Otherwise, the diversity and the differences between us will lead to a lack of trust 
And eventually, everybody just fends and fights for themselves. Sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? Mm. You see, so there's something that is so important for leadership is to is first to establish the commonalities, then leverage the diversity. Otherwise, the diversity becomes your biggest enemy. And so leveraging the diversity then becomes critical. So what does that diversity look like? Well, the diversity, we know one thing. Uh, the study that MIT has done, for example, to look at diversity is they established very well that we need equal gender diversity. In the old days, which 10 years ago, we talked male and female or men and women. Uh, and now we probably talk feminine and masculine. You know, I usually use this example that, that I have a feminine type of leadership style, which is more collaborative as opposed to executing. Uh, and therefore, we have, uh, we have in, our, in our team management, we need to execute properly, but that's more a masculine kind of style. But we need both in our teams. Um, and the idea that you need both the masculine and feminine inputs in teams uh, is critical for that C factor to be very high. What the feminine also does um, and so the females in the group most mostly, but remember that feminine and female and masculine and male are not 100% congruent. You can be a man with a feminine leadership style or a woman with a masculine leadership style. But by and large, we do still see that women have more feminine style uh, and men more masculine uh, operational or leadership styles. Long story short, you need both. and You need equal ingredients in the team. To enhance that, to ensure that you enhance the C factor, that it actually trumps that highest individual intelligence. And I'll say something about that in a second because that actually brings us to empathy. Just in terms of the other diver, uh, diver, uh, things we need to have in place in terms of diversity, it goes around the idea of tribes, the idea of different subcultures, if you may. We need different ethnicities. We need people from different backgrounds in terms of what they do, their, their capabilities, their skill sets. A quick, I don't want to brush this aside. It's, it's phenomenally important. It is politically laden today in the world, um, as is, by the way, uh, gender inequality, also injustice between different groups of different eth ethnic groups, uh, something that we try to stamp out as a larger unconscious, if you may, global uh, consciousness or unconsciousness in the world. We really need the hashtag Me Too. We really need the hashtags of ensuring that we are all equal and have equal turn-taking and operational capabilities in a team and in groups. And this is critical. So everybody has got that equal um, word and equal opportunity. Uh, for that reason, we need this the process of equality in ethnic groups, equality in gender groups, and so forth. Um, and I'm just talking from a scientific and a more sort of thought leadership perspective. Uh, it's critical that we have that. Of course, there's a strong political drive for that as well. Long story short, we, we don't know exactly what the degree of diversity uh, should be that is ideal. It has been studied um, by MIT and, interesting enough, the South African type of diversity uh, of ethnic groups is a very good example of, of a, a fairly optimal group construct, uh, if you may, or composition that gives us great problem-solving outcomes. We're just not that good, I think, still in South Africa to get that right. But you can see that there's a lot of work still needed to understand what is the real, the right kind of composition. And it might also be situational in different contexts. The outcome is critical, though. The outcome of a, the right kind of diverse group and the way that we construct through bonding and belonging and leadership to establish commonalities has to be that everybody in the group has equal turn-taking capabilities and has social psychological safety. 
remember that bonding and belonging speaks to social safety, whereas being 100% free, I say 100%, that's probably too much, but being at least have the freedom to voice your opinion in the group. Every individual in the group should have that freedom to voice their opinions and be safe, regardless of what they say. This is called psychological safety. And this is critical so that we can actually leverage the diversity within that group. And this, of course, brings me to the idea of, of empathy. So, Mariette, uh, we are very close to the, the, the real sort of onslaught of this whole, this, this, this whole conversation. Yes. Do you want me to continue? Yes. Yes. Okay. Please. Right. And so let's, let's continue um, thinking about this idea of, of psychological safety. So there are a few things around psychological safety. First of all, to have psychological safety, we need a mindset and a mindset that says everybody is equal and everybody is equally important in terms of their contributions they make and that everyone who makes contributions also uh, are important and some some uh, contributions of some might be more important under uh, different circumstances. That is just the way that life uh, works in its complexity. But the point that everybody is critical, equally important in a team or in a group is paramount. That's a mindset we need to really work on. And it's not an easy process, but we are moving towards this through, even through legislation and political drive uh, and other uh, social drives. Um, but from a scientific perspective, we know that it is important. Why is it so important to have this? It's because you and I as individuals are not going to survive. We are not going to stay on the curve of so-called resilience because the rapid accelerated change of the world is just too, too fast. It's too rapid. We need each other and we need to be collectively res resilient to overcome all the challenges that come our way. Uh, we cannot adapt fast enough as individuals anymore. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the major global reasons that the global consciousness is so much driving for this idea that we need very, very good collective creativity, collective intelligence and collective resilience. And so just another thought, if you want to just uh, zoom out a bit, look at it from far and say, well, here's some context that is critical. Back to zooming in again to the way that we actually drive the psychological safety and ensure that we are safe. Uh, at its crux lies this idea of empathy. Now, empathy is potentially very much like resilience, quite misunderstood still. Um, when we think empathy, I think some people think, you know, uh, compassion. And others might think effective empathy. And then there are probably fewer who think cognitive empathy. So let me just unpack those three con um, concepts um, in layman's terms, if you may. Compassion goes like this. You tell me a story that affected you or somebody in your inner circles that affected someone badly. I feel your pain, but I also am compelled to help to alleviate the pain. I need to help. That is compassion. Effective empathy is you tell me the same story. I can feel your pain. I am in the moment there with you, but I'm not compelled to help you to go and make it make a difference there. It's just the fact that I understand you are well understood in terms of your emotions. I can feel in your shoes. Cognitive empathy goes like this. I think in your shoes. You give me your point of reasoning and come up with a solution or actually with a particular uh, argument uh, around a certain topic. 
and I can see and feel, I actually understand where you're coming from. But that is not the end of cognitive empathy. Cognitive em- empathy also allows me to actually allow you to change my point of view. Because I can stand in your shoes, I can think in your shoes. It gives me the perspective and the ability or the, or the, or the capabilities, if you may, and the willingness to change my perspective through your perspective. Where does this come from, cognitive, cognitive empathy? Well, both cognitive empathy and effective empathy comes from very, very early days in our lives. In fact, you can go right back to the playground uh, and just think about the, the, the playground where young children in preschools play in the play, on the playground and in the sandpits. And they, you know, these, it looks quite chaotic. Uh, a lot of shouting and screaming and running and so forth. But if you actually go closer and you just take a look, you'll see that they play all kinds of games. And it most often have got to do with some form of what we call role play. I'm the cat, you're the dog. You're going to be the doctor, you're the fireman, and you are going to do this and this, and I'm going to do this and this and this. And then I play a role, and we play the game. And it looks seem quite random. But it is not random. It is actually very well structured. And what happens there is that those kids, in a very accelerated fashion, learn about the human condition. So they actually learn how the, how the human condition works, and they learn the first basic parts of it and then continue throughout their lives to build on that basic construct, that basic framework of understanding the human condition. And this is at the core of developing cognitive empathy, is the capacity of understanding the human condition. And therefore, I can actually, actually really um, put myself in your shoes, Mariette, and I can understand where you're coming from if you come with a particular argument or you make a particular point. If I can't do that, it's a very, very big problem. And we have a lack of cognitive empathy uh, in most boardrooms uh, in the world today still. And cognitive empathy in itself enhances the collective creative capability, collective creativity as such. Effective empathy, which also is learned in the playgrounds, those are also through role play. That is actually very important for bonding and belonging. So you can see that downstream, Effective empathy drives the social safety, the bonding, the belonging, and provides us with more psychological safety as well, whereas cognitive empathy ensures that I can actually hear you and I can change my perspective. That is also critical for psychological safety I mean, for the creative, uh, creativity of the collective as a whole. Now, Etienne, if you say there's a lack of cognitive empathy in some boardrooms, uh, that means that some people did not learn it, you know, in the playground, as you said. So I'd like to know which factors or personality traits may hinder the development of cognitive empathy. Well, I think the short answer is that I don't know because I, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert in the field of personalities and character traits. But I think let me just make a few broad statements. Um, I think what is important to understand is that we are not talking about I'm not talking about pathology. Um, you know, the idea of pathology is something that is a dysfunction and needs some form of treatment or whether that is with medication or with some, some psychological intervention and so forth. Uh, th- those markers are also continuously being shifted by more and more knowledge and understanding. And so don't for a moment think that 
there's a very fixed uh, sta- a static line between function and dysfunction. That line is continuously shifting, and it's shifting into very often into the into function, so that you actually have more and more what we call today functional to be dysfunctional. And some things that will be called pathology in the future is still today not regarded as pathological. However, we do know that, for example, psychopaths uh, and even um, certain Narcissistic, narcissistic traits or narcissistic kind of personality disorders are regarded as disorders or dysfunctional. Um, but we also know that most likely there are spectrums of the, of all these traits. And at some point the spec, in the spectra where it becomes so gray and vague, uh, we regard everything now as functional, although they might still be remnants and, and elements of those capacities. So I would think, um, if you have uh, some narcissistic and even psychopathological kind of uh, and antisocial kind of uh, traits, those c- can uh, lead to a challenge in the cognitive empathy space, undoubtedly. But I'm actually in a space here where I feel fairly that I'm actually slipping uh, into a space where we need other experts to talk about this. I think there's a that the idea of psychopaths in suits and narcissism um, and so on is 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 very often abused in the lay layperson's world, even by leaders. We've got to be careful about these terms because they have profound and strong meaning. But I do understand, however, that all these traits are human traits, and we can always work on certain components of um, of those characteristics. Uh, I'm not sure about personalities in that sense, in its own right, uh, and how to link that up uh, with these traits. I think we all have the capacity to build cognitive empathy. Uh, we can't go back to the sandpits uh, and sit and play. I sometimes wish I could take leaders back to the sandpits and play, do role play. We know that, by the way, that there is, of course, you know, there are interesting leadership uh, development uh, activities and organizations who provide adult role play uh, and uh, very interesting ways of, of helping leaders to to learn a bit more about the human condition. Uh, human curiosity is the solution, right? So the solution for cognitive empathy today is I need to be more curious about humans. I need to be very aware of the fact that I actually am often not engaging enough with people around me. Um, and especially after lockdown, right? We all have lost, you know, so I'm a real extrovert. But I have also even, I mean, I think I've lost some of my capacity, my skills, to really engage with uh, people around me. Um, and so we've got to really, you know, brush off the, the dust there, dust off those skills and own those skills again to really be curious about each other again and to engage with each other so that we can continue to learn and be, um, and be well uh, versed in the understanding of each other's, of, of the human condition. Uh, I think that is, a, that is an important thing to do, but it's not easy to get right. Thank you. I I love the idea of curiosity. Now, the last theme I'd like to touch on in our interview is burnout and compassion fatigue, because you've mentioned compassion and given a very looser description of it. What is the prevalence of burnout and compassion fatigue in high-performance teams? So... um... I think what is important is that compassion fatigue and burnout is not, are not the same. So burnout refers to specifically is ref, um, and also burnout as a medical syndrome in, in high performance teams uh, refer to a what is called today a medical syndrome. And this was recognized as a syndrome uh, in uh, 2019 by the World Health Organization. They still, it still needs to be figured out exactly how this all works. But burnout, uh, in short, um, has to be in the in the presence of chronic stress 
uh, in the workplace, which means that burnout as a result of chronic stress in the workplace is a syndrome. Um, and it is characterized by the feelings of overwhelmness, uh, becoming cynical and disengaged from your, your particular tasks, uh, daily tasks. And, and this, of course, then leads to people feeling exhausted and not actually doing um, their best uh, and have a low yield for the energy they assign to tasks. Most likely, disengagement has to do with energy that is re- reassigned elsewhere because it's just too much energy that needs to be assigned to the task itself. But in that, of course, that leads to, to continuous leakage of energy, which then eventually leads to burnout. Burnout is um, it is a long process. It happens over many months um, and even sometimes years. And there's a process of spiraling, uh, relentless, continuous, slow spiraling down into that space. And so uh, or even though it is very nonspecific as a condition in its own right, you think of it overwhelmed and cynical and, and, and uh, disengaging from the workplace uh, or from your work, that is those are nonspecific. And so you have to understand this in, within the context of a, a, a slow transition and as a result of chronic stress, right, that uh, says I, I can't really cope with my work for a very long time. Um, there are ways of diagnosing this. Arguably, the best way of diagnosing burnout uh, is sold the MASLAC inventory or uh, index, M-A-S-L-A-C-H, I think, MASLAC. So the Maslach Inventory, uh, Mayo Clinic has a well-being index that also look at burnout risk. Um, that's actually a very short questionnaire of nine questions. It's been studied with more than 500,000 people. So it's a very strong index that look at the well-being index. Um, so I can also recommend the Mayo Clinic well-being index to look for burnout uh, risk. Uh, and then um, at Neurozone, we also measure burnout risk in that sense uh, and also look at the levels of resilience for, for, for that matter to ensure that people do not burn out because the way to not burn out is to actually is through resilience. Um, now, back to this idea of compassion fatigue. This usually happens. People uh, become uh, exhausted and, and disengaged from uh, from specific work, specific type of work. And compassion fatigue, therefore, has got a specific rel- a relatedness to what you are doing. Uh, doctors, nurses, church ministers, um, and carers, people who work with people, even attorneys and so on. So people who actually have to com- look after people who are suffering uh, continuously. Um, those are the people who typically can develop compassion fatigue, which is not burnout, and fortunately also can recover much quicker. But it has got the same result eventually, and that is that you have a very a much lower yield for the energy you assign to tasks, and therefore people are not high-performing. Um, it's, it's worthwhile to recognize the difference between these two, um, and so the context is, is quite important. As I said, one of the challenges of burnout and why that carries such a great cost in the world of work is that it takes a very long time in general for people to recover from burnout, even up to a year, six months to a year to actually get your system back into the space where it can assign the right amount of energy to the, to tasks and where it has actually, so to say, you got back on your horse. I hope that helps a bit, Marit. It does. Thank you. And then if one looks at the NeuroZone website, there are many articles and there are sound bites to listen to. And it seems to me that resilience is the end goal of much of what you do. Oh, yes. So that, that is uh, probably one of the goosebump things for me uh, is that was this journey over the last decade. Um, and maybe I can share with you where why I am here not seeing patients at the moment. Um, in, a, in a nutshell, 
something we could have started with, but I think this is a very nice way to actually to give you this bit of uh, the story. Uh, I see one after the other burnt out patient already 15 years ago in my in my practice in South Africa and even working in the Netherlands and, and the UK, seeing many patients with these the same kind of neurological symptoms. These are symptoms of a weak arm or a weak leg or loss of consciousness, something that says, hey, there's something really wrong in my brain. I need a scan. And of course, after a normal scan, these patients were very relieved and they thought that they're fine, but they were not because they also had burnout uh, and they were hyperventilating unconsciously and they had uh, other symptoms, of course, of burnout. And I started working with these patients to try to get them back on track. Um, and they were very compliant, of course. And after, because because on that note, uh, there's something really important here. They were very compliant. They were very disciplined. They were very hardworking. And with all that discipline and hard work and tenacity and grit, they still work themselves into this burnout situation. Um, and you could probably call that poor self-leadership, meaning that they didn't assign the right amount of energy to the right tasks and actually looked after themselves in terms of their application well enough. Um, and this in itself was a lack of resilience. There's a very, very a strong correlation between resilience and self-leadership. And I'll speak to that resilience in a second. But working with these patients with programs, uh, very rudimentary programs of mindfulness, nutrition, um, exercise, their sleep, looking at their sleep, looking at their, their rhythms, looking at the emotional system, looking at their bonding and belonging, looking after their energy, you know, their, their, their optimism, their gratitude, uh, their curiosity, and then looking at how they actually work together in their teams, looking at their empathy and the way then that they learned and applied their capacity to solve problems. All of these came into play eventually, and this became a whole system, uh, a very systems-based kind of solution to look at a variety of different what we call neurobehaviors to ensure that they actually move back into this non-burnout state, into the state of high-performance readiness. We also call the state a baseline relaxed physiological state. Now, this is a state where you and I have low blood pressure. We have uh, slow heart rate, our metabolism works well, and everything works well, and it also gives us longevity because in this state where we should be, every time we overcome a challenge, we need to move back into the state. In this state, the system maintains itself. It actually removes the cancer cells, the neurodegenerative cells. It repairs the cells that it can repair. So it actually is critical for maintenance and longevity. And so chronic stress, that is, there is if you are not in the state and you cannot actually overcome challenges and it continues to be, be, be a, a challenge and a problem. This is what is called chronic stress. And chronic stress means that you are not in this baseline relaxed physiological state. And therefore, chronic stress leads to burnout because you continue to assign energy and eventually the machine burns out. Such a nice way of understanding burnout from that perspective. You see, it all comes together. The solution is resilience. And the solution of resilience means that the more resilient you and I am or are uh, to overcome these challenges, the better we will be at overcoming challenges that come our way that are, that are bigger challenges, that are more frequent, and so on and so forth. And at some point in time, I can't do this on my own again. And today, as I said, when we started our talking, simply we cannot overcome all the challenges that are coming our way today. They are just it's too thick and fast, and therefore we need each other. We need collective resilience. We need to collectively solve our problems and overcome these challenges. And so collective resilience requires a synergistic way that we actually all our individual resiliences are combined within our teams and so on. But resilience in itself is the capacity to overcome challenges using our knowledge and skills, 
using everything that we've learned to assign the right amount of energy to those tasks, overcome those challenges, learn from it, and grow through it, meaning that I can overcome bigger and bigger challenges going forward. But as I said, because of rapid acceleration and the rapid accelerating change, we simply cannot, even if we grow as fast as we possibly can, we cannot do it on our own, and we need to do it together. And this is why resilience is the solution and is such an important place at NeuroZone, because these patients became clients. And over time, NeuroZone was formed, and NeuroZone is 10 years old now. And over time, we also saw that the, all these behaviors, all these things that we can do, the transactions, if you may, of going to bed at the same time at night, uh, practicing high-intensity interval training and intermittent fasting and all kinds of different nuances, uh, six, zero, 60 of these different behaviors that we use in our system today, all these behaviors, we saw that they are dynamic. We saw that they actually all contribute to resilience. And over time, we learned that this is a very dynamic system. In the same way that you can enhance your resilience, and remember, this is fantastic to know, you can enhance your resilience, but your resilience can also be reduced. So resilience is a dynamic entity. it It doesn't stay the same. And you can build that resilience. And there are different forms of resilience, mental resilience, cognitive resilience, physical resilience, and other forms of resilience out there. You can Google them, financial, and there are many different forms of resilience. But what we are focusing on at NeuroZone is very much mental resilience with an overlap in physical or physiological resilience uh, and cognitive resilience. And this resilience can be enhanced. And the way you enhance them, uh, uh, especially in our system, is by paying attention to these behaviors and understanding what the priorities are. How do these behaviors prioritize themselves? What should I now do that gives me the best bang for my buck? So if somebody comes to you and tells you, these are the five things that you must do to be resilient today, and you hear this in a TED talk, you can know that they are potentially wrong. And why I'm saying this is because the accuracy of that statement was very much dependent on when it was studied, in what context, and in who. And so it is accurate for the group that it was studied in at the time that it was studied in that context. All of these things continuously change. And because they change, we also seem to change the way that we prioritize what is more important today. Before COVID, we saw that in the world of leaders, we had about 12,500 leaders uh, in the system at the time, we saw that the most important predictor of resilience was optimism. And the number two was reducing negative thought patterns. And number three was practicing a generic parts technique, which is to actually break up the problem into the smallest little bits and then use that understanding to come up with a solution. You can actually go and Google that. Uh, Whoever listens to to this podcast, uh, the generic parts technique. Um, And uh, those were the top three ones uh, out of 65 behaviors that we studied at the time. And when COVID arrived, we saw that this actually changed. It changed globally because of this dwarfing external uh, thing called lockdown, right? And a number of other challenges that the whole world experienced uh, as one uniform variable. And we saw that uh, exercise diversity became the number one predictor of resilience Uh, and pushed uh, optimism to number seven in the list. Uh, And then the number two was exercise duration, and number three was avoiding destructive habits. They were correlating, but also actually predicting, meaning that if you do more of this, 
you should get more resilience, so more bang for your buck. And this is why I'm saying uh, if you want to have an elevator pitch for what we do in terms of resilience, resilience is dynamic, and we have dynamic neurobehaviors that continuously prioritize themselves and to actually give us more bang for our buck. Uh, this is a fascinating understanding of how the whole system of resilience works and how behaviors um, actually continuously prioritize themselves. Thank you, Etienne. And I will attach a link to the NeuroZone web website to this podcast. Thank you, Marie And um, it was absolutely great to speak to you. Wait a minute. Before I let you go, may I ask you a fun question? Yes, please. I know you're a trained opera singer. <laughs> now, my question is, if you could be singing on any stage worldwide tonight, where would it be and what would you be singing? Oh, that is such a wonderful question. I get goosebumps. Um, for a moment, I can dream, right? Yes. Um, well, I would tell you where I would want to sing. I want, would want to sing in an open theater in Florence. Or Florence or Firenze. Um, and I would be singing two songs, if I may. I would sing La Bohème. From La Bohème, I would sing Che Gelida Manina, which is Your Tiny Hand is Frozen, one of one of Puccini's operas. And the second one, the the one that every tenor wants to end off the whole the whole concert with is another one by Puccini coming from the uh, the opera Turandot, which is Nesun Dorma. Nobody will sleep tonight. Oh, yes. And I would like to dream that I, I'd like to be in the audience. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I hope, I, I hope that that dream be, doesn't become a nightmare. Marie. <laughs> Thank you, Etienne, for introducing us to so many new concepts and insights. And, yeah, I think what I learned the biggest thing I learned was that how dependent we are on groups. Thank you very much. Well, I thank you, Marie, for this opportunity and all of the best to everybody out there. Thank you. And to our listeners, it was good of you to join us. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, marietsneyman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.